3: Happy hour on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. We are live in Hollywood, Florida. The Patriot Awards are tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. That's the exclusive home for the Patriot Awards tonight. You should watch. And it's exciting. As you might be able to hear in the background, the crowd is in, and they are loud. Thousands of them will be in the auditorium to my left here in just a few hours. It's going to be really, really exciting. Our website here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free, and the happy hour is sponsored, as always, by our friends at The Finnish Long Drink. It's really good. (laughs) Refreshing. It is delicious. You've got to try it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you, expanding all over the place. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Well, I am joined now, sitting right next to me, by someone that perhaps you've heard of, if you're a Fox fan. Tucker Carlson is host of Tucker Carlson Tonight. Weeknights, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also, Tucker Carlson Today and Tucker Carlson Originals at Fox Nation. You can find out more at
4: foxnation.com or tuckercarlson.com. You're very busy. They have you doing many things, Tucker. I can't believe I'm on a show sponsored by a Finnish booze company. That is the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. Well, I'm glad that we can be a part of it. I love Finland. I'm actually part Finnish, and the Finns know booze. Like they do. They, <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and this has been
3: the most popular alcoholic beverage there for, like, 70 years. It's <laughs> like Guinness that. is to Ireland as long drink is to Finland. And they sponsored the show, and it's really good. That it's, is so,
4: it's such a great country. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful country, I think.
3: I want to start with just some, like, almost shop talk. Because whenever I'm out and meeting people and chatting with Fox viewers around the country when I'm traveling... Many times people ask about you. Oh, Tucker, what's he like? You know, his show, it's been such a huge success. It got me thinking, because you've been in this business for a while now. You've been at CNN and Crossfire.
4: 26 the, years. The
3: Bowtie Days and yeah. MSNBC, of course, Then at Fox. Different roles here at Fox. Yeah, yeah. And now this primetime show that has just been like a rocket ship, this massive success. Not taking anything away from your prior successes at other networks and other shows. What is it about this show that you think has catapulted it to the level that it is? What's unique about it?
4: Well, I don't have any sense of, you know, I'm, I'm the least self-aware person in the world by design. I think self-awareness leads to self-obsession, which leads to self-pity, which leads to misery. So I <laughs> really try not to think about myself. Um, but if I'm being completely honest about it, I think it, it's pretty simple. Like I've hosted a lot of shows on multiple networks and it really depends on the network. You know, if you're hosting a a show on a channel that nobody watches, then nobody's watching. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like you host a show on Fox right now and speak to relevant issues. You can't but help get a big audience. And that's kind of – so I'm not being falsely modest. I'm being sincere because I've lived it. I think it really has a lot to do with, you know, the 8 p.m. show on Fox is just an amazing piece of real estate. Um, I, I know that personally I'm 52, so I've really kind of run out of any interest at all in what liars say. So, for example, 20 years ago, if someone had ever called me a white supremacist, I think I would have been paralyzed with horror because that's an awful thing to call someone. It's an awful thing to be, and I'm, of course, not. But now I real, I've realized, just having grown older, that like the people saying that don't mean it at all. You know, The first time someone called me that, I went on TV and said, no, actually, you know, I'm, I've got really pretty liberal racial views. I think we're all the same. Everyone's created by God. I'm a Christian. I think we have identical value, and I really mean that, and I do think that. And so I hope this clears it up. He's a white supremacist! And that's when I realized they don't care what you say. No, there's no they're, point in clearing up. There's out. no point, right? So the only reason they're saying that is in order to control you through fear. And I'm just old enough that I'm not at all afraid. I know exactly who I am. I have weaknesses. That's just not one of them. Now, if they call me out of one of my weaknesses... If they're like, wow, like what? I don't know, we notice that you gain and lose 50 pounds a year. Like, maybe you could get your, you know, <laughs> snacking under control. That would probably hurt my feelings a little bit because that's totally real.
3: <laughs> what's, what's your worst, like, guilty pleasure oh, snack?
4: Shit. I mean, I, you know, I'll eat anything bad. Um, I think partly it's, well, it's just a lack of self-control. Or, you know, I write a lot. You know, I, that's essentially my job is to write. And so I think when, you know, you're totally absorbed in writing something every day, you kind of give yourself permission in a very self-indulgent way to eat crappy food, and that's whatever. I mean, it's just—and part of it is just just laziness, you know, rather than make a meal or go find a meal. You know, if someone were to put a bunch of Fig Newtons in my house, I'd probably eat them. It's like, here they are. Right. So, so, so but that's like an actual fault. Or sometimes I get mad. You know, I have a temper. That's a totally fair criticism, and I take that seriously. But the other criticisms that are not real at all, they're not even close to real, I sincerely don't care. I just don't care. So that's a strength. If you don't care, and you—that means you can't. They don't have a leash on you. Like they, they're not controlling. But
3: you. But they try, of course. And there's this whole almost cottage industry. There's a whole group of people devoted, seemingly, to criticizing you and trying to get you fired and canceled every day. Do you ever think about them when you're planning the program? Like even to give them middle fingers on a nightly basis? No, it's you not funny. Think it's
4: funny. Them? If you knew how cut off I was by design, I don't think anyone would actually really believe it. But I just, I lead a very different kind of life. You know, I'm not interested in participating in that. I don't like the internet. I think technology is, for the most part, poison. I'm for MRIs, you know. <laughs> okay. I'm for chemotherapy. But in general, technology has not liberated us. It's enslaved us. And it makes people unhappy. And it divides them from each other. And I just don't participate. You know, I don't like the internet at all. And I don't go there. I don't do social media. I hate social media. So right. how do you build a nightly show? If you're cut off to it's some a text extent. text message. Through text messages. With so. with your team? No, 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 with hundreds of people. So I get daily texts from probably a couple hundred at least people I know around the country, world really, who I've known for a long time, who've got good judgment, who are in different worlds, living different kinds of lives, who send me stuff. And that's the primary way that I understand the world. And it's almost like having a team of, I know this sounds very weird, but it's 100%, ask anybody who works with me, it's true. And, um, and, I, and then in my private life, I really try and read books. I don't I, I think the internet is so misleading, it gives the Google gives the illusion of access to knowledge when in fact it's a tightly constrained world, constrained by people with the worst possible motives. You know, so if you want to understand what's happening in the world, read history. And I, I, I do. I mean I have a lot of faults, but I do read every day. Book, you know, actual like paper they're made out of paper.
5: You put I've them under
4: a ha. So that's what. it's so, so like, I have no sense of it. So the only time I ever get any sense of it is, on, you know, if I go into public with one of my kids and someone starts screaming at me, I'm like totally baffled by it. Why are you mad at me? But apparently there is quite a bit of opposition to our show, but none of it ever filters down to me at all. I and last thing I'll say is sure. I listen very, very carefully to the negative opinions of people I respect and trust. So it's not that I'm impervious to criticism. I take it very seriously. If my wife thinks I've done something wrong, man, I brood about it because I really care. I've been married thirty years. I really care what she thinks. My children, close friends, I have a couple producers who I'm very close to personally. I listen very carefully to them. So, but I, what I don't do is listen to people who aren't speaking in good faith, who are stupid or unwise or whose own lives are demonstrably disastrous. Like, why would I care what they think? Do you, or like
3: malignant on purpose.
4: But they, they just have no demonstrated record of success. So, like, would you buy real estate from a homeless guy? Would you invest with Bernie Madoff? No, then why would you take personal life advice from someone whose personal life is in disarray? Like, I would never do that because I'm not an idiot. So I listen to people who are impressive, and there are a million people I know who are more impressive than I am, and I listen very carefully to what they say. Um, But I'm absolutely not going to listen to, like, CNN. Why would I care what they say? I just, I literally don't care.
3: You and I appeared on Gutfeld briefly together because you were having a debate, a formal debate, with Greg about who the dumbest person on CNN was. And you had a very strong opinion on that. There was another network mentioned at one point, and another... Uh, anchor these days at that network. And I believe you went out of your way not to mention her name. I will. You don't have to. But Nicole Wallace yesterday referred to or compared our network, Fox News, to terrorists. And yeah. I wonder you can you can engage with her or not. But with this... Wildly overheated rhetoric. I mean, right. what drives that? Do,
4: do they believe it? Are they angry that we're well? I haven't rumour. seen Nicole. I've known Nicole for you know more than twenty years. Nicole, when I knew her, was called Nicole Devinish, and she was a flack. She was a you know a, a spin person. She worked for Jeb Bush, who was then governor of Florida, and she was his what do they call it, communications director or something. So people like that. You know, have their merits, have their values. They're not all evil or anything, but their job description is lying. They lie for a living. They'll say what they're told to say. They'll say what they have to say. They're not involved in even the theoretical pursuit of truth. And I don't think that she has changed her orientation ever since. Like, whatever drives Nicole Wallace. I mean, I find her unusually venomous and lacking credibility and repulsive, actually. But that's just a gut reaction that I have because I've known her for so long and I respect her so little. But that whole category of people is really su- shocking to me. Look, you're on TV, okay? People, some percentage are taking you seriously. I, in my show, I'm afraid of what's happening in a lot of ways to the country, and I say that, and I know that that probably freaks people out. But I really try not to make people more afraid than I think is warranted. Last night, for example, we did a piece on the riots of the summer of 2020, and we have a lot of footage of those riots, mm-hmm. and some of that footage is so shocking, and i being blunt with you, so racially divisive that we don't put it on the air at, at my request because I don't. It's real, but I don't want to give people the impression you that think this it's is much. some hellscape. It's too much, and television is such a powerful medium. You can really evoke heavy-duty emotion in people. Television is not about conveying facts; it's about conveying feelings, emotion. So you should pause before you whip people into a frenzy. You really should. I don't always, and that, that's my fault, and I should, but I try to. Someone like Nicole Devinish who has no record of achieving anything in her life, like Nicole, what's the sum total of, of Nicole Devanish's or whatever she's calling herself now? Like, she's just not an impressive person. So, in place of actual achievement, she tries to be as extreme as she possibly can. I think in this moment, that's a moral failing. I mean it. Let me ask you
3: about a poll that I just saw, and it's interesting because what you do often on Tucker Carlson tonight and today and all the Tucker Carlson's is you will sometimes broach topics that others don't or won't. Yeah, of course. And, And something that has been discussed, and you know this whispered about a lot, especially in D.C., is the health and the mental fitness of President Biden. Yeah. Now you have major pollsters actually asking questions I about it. Him. And this Politico story has it's a 46-48 split. Is the guy uh, mentally sharp, or the exact term was mentally fit for the job, with 48% of plurality saying, no, he's not. It's interesting to see that conversation, which was very harsh sort of off-limits for quite some time, starting to bubble up a little uh, bit more openly. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
4: Well, I'm so divided internally on the subject. I have such mixed feelings about it because, yes, he is going now, obviously. And that, But just to tell you, I know that I've known Joe Biden for 30 years. I always liked Joe Biden, for whatever it's worth. Very warm person. Never agreed with him, but I never hated him at all. I always liked Joe Biden. I know a bunch of members of his family, and I some a couple of them very well. And I knew for a fact that the certain members of the family were very concerned about his cognitive ability they didn't expect him to get the nomination nobody did and he got it and they were freaked out about it that's i'm not speculating i know that for a fact so i knew that the family believed he was in cognitive decline so there's that and that's news that's news on the other hand i'm a human being i'm 52 like i hope i make it to 78 i think there's nothing sadder than someone losing his mind i think that's that i've seen
3: it with relatives of course
4: people you really love yeah I respect old people, that's the other thing. I just instinctively respect old people. They've well, been around longer. I
3: aspire to be yeah, old, Yeah, exactly. Right? Thank
4: you. Nicely put. I aspire to be an old person. And so to mock a man's senility is like I'm not going to do that. I probably have because I've violated a lot of my principles <laughs> in the heat of the moment, but I try not to. I don't want to be that guy. I want to treat old people with respect even if I, you know, abhor what they're doing. And so I'm not coming out every night saying he's a vegetable. Well, first of all, he's not a vegetable, but he is in decline. Look, pull up tape from Joe Biden four years ago, it's a totally different man. Yeah. So everybody knows it. I would just say as a political matter, I felt that his obvious, whatever you want to call it, the fact he was slowing down, was one of the reasons he got elected. Because he seemed non-threatening. Mm-hmm. So he might be a little punchy. He's clearly not in his game. Whatever you, you know, however but you want to Kind of safe, that, normal. Safe. Thank you. That's the word. Safe. And I got that. I totally understood that. I know why people voted for Biden. I definitely do. I'm not mocking them for voting for him. They were exhausted by Trump. They're not ideological. They didn't think about the ideas that Biden represents or that Trump represents. It's like, Trump is freaking me out. I need to get to something calm. And that's why they voted Biden. I understand it. What what we didn't understand is that Biden would be immediately taken over and used as a vessel by people who really have a hard ideological agenda that is... Yeah. How, how safe is it feeling right it's, now? Not at all. And, you know, if Biden had come in and done things I disagree with, raise taxes or kept troops in syria and i would have complained about it because i don't agree with those things however i wouldn't have been afraid you know if he had made good on his promise to try to unite the country not demonize whole segments of the population on the base of their vac status you know the worst thing that biden has done in office so far is that press conference where he said we're running out of patience for you people who haven't had the vaccine really first of all people are vaccinated according to pfizer's own numbers are not living longer than people who aren't vaccinated. In fact, according to the study, they're living a little shorter. They also are, according to the actual studies, slightly more likely to pass on the virus. So, like, I'm not saying there's no benefit to the vaccine. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there's no basis upon which to demonize people who haven't been vaccinated and blame them for the freaking pandemic. That's totally evil that he did. That was totally evil. Talk about dividing the country. That's the worst thing I've ever seen a president do. I'm still mad about it. And no one's talking about the vaccines because, like, you don't want to be an anti-vaxxer. Well, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had a million vaccines. I'll probably have many more. My kids have had vaccines. But that is wrong. That is totally wrong. You cannot force people to take medical treatment against their will, period. Period. Not in this country. Because why would we stop with corona? What about HIV or tuberculosis or, you know what I mean? Like, this is insane. And everyone's afraid to say it's insane. I'm not afraid because I'm—I I don't care. It isn't. <laughs> You're not afraid to say many things. But that's just—that's truly nuts. And we're going to wake up one morning and be like, "I can't believe we lived through that. Why didn't we say something?"
3: It was all a dream, except <laughs> it wasn't. We're <laughs> living it here at the Patriot Awards in Florida. It's good to see you, Tucker. Thanks for dropping by. You like you got a whole me whole all spun
4: shit. up, Guy Benson.
3: And as I was going to like wind him up and let him go, but <laughs> we have a break. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson tonight every weeknight, 8 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Good to see you, sir. Thanks for doing this.
4: Thanks, man. Super fun.
3: Appreciate it. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink on the Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, live from Florida and the Patriot Awards tonight. A lot there from Tucker. Wow, you can go back, listen to the podcast if you missed it. We'll put it up on YouTube as well. Here's the thing. Tucker is a fascinating guy. I disagree with him on some stuff. Right, Some of the stuff on vaccines and COVID, I don't agree with him. January 6th, some of that, I don't agree with him. But we can have these conversations, do so in a sort of cheerful, respectful way. And that's fine. I think that's what we should do in America. I'll also say he has been incredibly, and this is the way he is, he is very, very personable, very kind. For example, my in-laws are huge fans of his. And they met him a couple years ago, and he, and this is often what he does, he treated them like they were the only people on earth. Just dialed in and just got such a kick out of it. My in-laws did. It was just, it was amazing. So it was fun to have him here, especially with, I mean, you should have seen the crowd that gathered just because he's here. I mean, he's got such a following. So uh, a memorable interview, certainly, here on the Guy Benson Show with Tucker. Maybe we'll get him back sometime. He's a busy man doing a lot of things, as we pointed out. I will also highlight, coming up, Tomorrow, We have just confirmed at the top of the show, Christine, top of the show tomorrow, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky. He will be here. I really want to talk to him about this spending spree that the Democrats are going to attempt. And he's seen a thing or two, and I'd imagine he has some thoughts. So Mitch McConnell on the Guy Benson show tomorrow. Also coming up next here in the flesh, Tom Shalhoub. Our Fox News colleague—he's the warm-up act tonight. Get everyone laughing, and not that they need to get fired up. I mean, people are stoked to be here. He'll tell us all about that, plus his impressions. That's straight ahead on the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: We are back live from Florida, as we are getting ever closer. ...to the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation. That's the only way to watch Night Live, 8 p.m. Eastern. It is going to be a party. And there are a lot of folks here. There's a bar or two, I understand. So it's going to be a fun crowd, I think, tonight. And the man who is charged with getting them in the right mood and headspace... ...and and feeling a little raucous, maybe some laughs, is my next guest. Tom Shalhoub, comedian, author. You can see him on Gutfeld regularly... He'll be warming up the crowd tonight at the Patriot Awards. He joins me here uh, up on,
6: I guess, the the second floor in this theater. And it's great to see you, Tom. You too, Guy. And uh, I'm excited to do stand-up. I told them in my intro, I said, make sure you introduce me as stand-up comedian, Tom Shillow, because I think a lot of this audience knows me from Gutfeld, but they don't know I do stand-up. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want them to be surprised that but, i am launching into material
3: couldn't it be a pleasant surprise
6: oh uh, yeah but like, as, as the, long as you don't bomb yes but i have done gigs before where it, it takes a while where they're like why is he you what's know what's he doing yeah what they think i'm an MC, and they think oh okay he's opening with a joke oh he's doing another joke why does he why is it doesn't he stop telling There's jokes and get on the joke. with the show? yes so i want them to know it's stand-up comedy so Anyway, well, we'll, that's we'll spread my job. the word. Yeah, and I'm not going to be on the broadcast. It will be, it's for the audience, so. the, in, the in-person, yes, in-house audience here. Yeah.
3: So, how long do you have? And I mean, do you want to do you want to give us any sense of where you're going?
6: Well, thematically, it's, it's ten minutes, and it's a little bit of a romp down memory lane. I talk a lot about growing up in the '70s. It's some of the material was covered in my book, but. Uh, you know, it's... Mean dads for a better America. Mean dads for a better America. I talk about my dad a lot in my act. Um, but, you know, let's face it. It's not that great. It's not that funny. But it's just <laughs> funny enough so that it's just going to get this audience going, you know. <laughs> I get a feeling like if I was going to destroy the audience, uh, I don't think they'd have me. They'd say, why? Well, you know, He's going to tire them out. They're going to be, you know... Rolling. They want, to, they want to go up from me. So the Patriot Awards, after me comes pete hegseth right. right so they, they need you to
3: be acceptable
6: yes like mediocre to fine yeah i mean that's been and you my think whole you, can career. Hit, you can hit that are you kidding that's car. what i'm made of i mean it's like <laughs> my whole career like this is when i was running around doing commercials you know how do you get a career in commercials it's a, it, it pays well um you know it's 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 good it's 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 a union job what's you your know?
3: favorite commercial you ever did
6: a Snickers, probably. Snickers. And what was, what was your role? Were well, you the hungry guy? Well, you, you remember Snickers had people trying to do things, and then when when they failed, they would have a Snickers, you know, like... It was like a consolation prize for yes. themselves. Okay. So I was I was um, a bald man. I had a, a bald pate on my head, and then I was trying to force hair to grow out of my head using only my sheer force of will. Oh, I see. And then finally, like I push so it. hard, yes, that one strand pops out of my forehead. People might remember this. I do a remember this commercial. Snickers. The hair pops out of my head, and then I'm so happy that I, 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 Snickers satisfies. You know, I can take a break and have a Snickers. Oh,
3: almost like a celebratory Snickers, yes. having sprouted your single hair. Yep. And yep. that was your favorite commercial to have
6: done. I think that was, yeah.
3: So... Stand-up comedy obviously is a very different beast. How do you get a sense when you're up there? Because this is a bi- this is thousands of people. Yes, right. Big, I remember big room. I was a warm-up act years ago for an event actually with Sarah Palin, similar sized crowd. I was very nervous. I mean, that oh, yeah. many people. Wow! And they they were like, "Oh, warm them up, get them fired up, and be funny." It's like, "Oh God," you know, like you. Wow! How how do you do this? And I was a little tentative, but the first joke hit. Yeah. And you could, I couldn't even see the crowd because it was, you know, this bright light, but I could hear just sort of the ripple yeah. of laugh and, and, and laughter. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, like for me, it kind of melted away and I leaned into it. Yes. When do you know if it's working?
6: Well, that's the thing is, I would, that is a very tense situation that you were in because what, you wrote a joke for the occasion, right? Yes. I mean, I don't want to do that. With stand up, that's the whole great thing about it is that it's like, it's like being in a cover band. You know the songs already uh-huh. that people like. So when you go to play, play the, the bar or whatever, you play the songs everybody likes, and you get a set list. And then it—it's it, always going to work at whatever level it does. But it's always going to be successful. And so with know, up, no
3: one's it's like, no one's going to like boo Jesse's girl.
6: Yes, right. And that's my act is like Jesse's girl. So I basically. I do material that I've done before. I'm not doing it trying any new jokes with this crowd. Okay, no innovation. I come here. out, I do the act. It's what I do in comedy clubs. It's what I do when I open up for Gutfeld. And the act changes year to year, but basically the material I'm doing tonight, I've I just did it with Greg in Birmingham at a big theater. So I kinda know where I want to go with it, you know.
3: Yeah. It's 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 something of a comfort zone because it's tried and true. Yep in this case. You mentioned Gutfeld. Uh, You appear on that show a lot. You do some impressions. Yes. Talk about the creative process as a comedian of deciding that you want to do an impression and then figuring out how the hell to do it and honing it so it's actually not terrible.
6: Yeah. Well, It's not really good. I mean, the good thing about Gutfeld is that we're limited. I think that's always the way that... So much of the gut felt humor comes from its limitations. We don't have a huge budget. We're not like the Tonight Show with right. like a staff of 35 writers or whatever. It's just a group of people. you know. It's like five or seven people like putting this whole show together. So when I do, I did Adam Schiff for a while. Adam Schiff, I would shoot it on my phone. And all I did was put a little rouge on my cheeks. And then I bugged out my eyes. Out and eyes. I shot it on the phone, right? So it was easy. And I could do it and then send it in. And then if the stories change, they'd say, oh, no, we're not doing this, that angle. We're going to do this. I could do another one. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the way that you would have to go in for hair and makeup and then do a script. It's loose. So he sends me an idea. I write something. I film it with Joe Biden. Right.
3: I wanted to ask you about the Joe Biden impression. Joe
6: Biden. People come up to me all the time and they say, how long does it take you to get the makeup and everything on? There's no makeup. <laughs> There's no makeup. I'll show it to you. The The radio audience won't be able to see this. I'll try to describe it, yeah, because this is it's what Snapchat. we do here with, with Snapchat, the spoken word. Right? Yes. You open up Snapchat, you put on the old man filter. Oh, yeah. The filter. Come on, man. See that? Yeah. It turns my hair white, it wrinkles my face a little, and all I have to do is the squint. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I have it. That That's pretty Biden-y
3: right there. Yeah. And so then what, what verbal text, like what when you do the impression...
6: What are your go-tos to be, like, sort of the signals? Like, this is Joe Biden. Well, it's a series of tricks. You know, I'm not that great of an impressionist, but neither were the greatest impressionists of all time. Like, Dana Carvey, his famous impression of George H.W. Bush. If you look at it, it sounds nothing it's like ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And yes. it works. Yes. And so I'm not a technician the way that, say, now, Daryl Hammond was. Daryl Hammond's amazing. Sure. But I'm more of the 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 Dana Carvey school. I find a few things and I exaggerate them. The squint is one of them. The come on man. Mm -hmm. The the strange bursts of anger that that go into wandering uh, old man. You know. Mm -hmm. And so it's I combine those things. And then for a while, when I first did it, it was a series of everything Joe Biden did. He would just say, you know, uh, he'd say, you got to talk to Jen Psaki. Sacky, hacky, sacky, hacky sacks, hacky sacks. That's good. You know, uh, deadheads. Dead. Deadhead. He would just make one reference to another, right. and he would just, just a stream of trail off into no. So all the Joe Bidens were that. What same am I thing. doing? What am I saying? Yeah. So it it evolved. Now that we want to do more newsy things, Greg will do a news item, and then he'll send me a clip of the story, and then he'll say, "Let's see what Joe thinks." And so now I'm I'm commenting more on the news. So we can't really do that. The thing we did before right so it's changed you have to roll with the punches each day yeah so like
3: if you were joe biden right you're the president and gutfeld plays some clips uh, you know of, of the news it's like hey, well you know mr president the american people are very concerned about inflation you just are you are you off the top of your head responding
6: are you scripting it what do you say there i will script he'll send me that the inflation right the, the the story, and then I will just start thinking about it. I pu- I make a cup, I, you know, I make a pot of coffee. I spin it around, and then I think about okay, what's inflation? So I'll start doing it. And sometimes my wife and kids are home, so they hear me kind of going through it. And I'll say, inflation, come on, what? come on, man, inflation. What it, it's it's it, it's good for everybody, you know. I, I mean. I mean uh, uh, you know, uh, m- m- my son, his paintings used to sell for two hundred. They sell for four hundred fifty grand. You know, <laughs> so I'll just throw in jokes about Hunter, and I'll try to think of the opposite. Like inflation's bad, so what's funny? You just flip it on his head, and okay, Joe will say why it's good. Right. So you have a setup right there.
3: What about his weird, uh, the whispering?
6: Yeah. Right. Because sometimes it's it's these outbursts of yells, and then whispers. Yes. I don't know what that is, other than. <laughs> I felt it was Joe Biden giving me something else to do with my impression. Oh, it
3: was just him doing you a favor personally. Yes,
6: because I he, I was running out of things to do. <laughs> and then he started doing this creepy whisper. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll just incorporate that in. I t- thanks, Joe. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> we asked this to Pete Hegseth, who's emceeing tonight,
3: yeah. yesterday on the show. And he's actually just a few feet from us. And I asked him because it's impossible. I've been talking publicly for basically my whole career. I still get nervous for certain things. Yeah. Huge crowd. Nervous
6: at all, or is this just like old hat? No, it is old hat because it's stand-up. It's like the... Uh, but if I were presenting tonight and I had to do an intro, I would be working on it. Uh, you know, if I had to do a joke, like, like you said when you were doing the Sarah Palin thing, you had a couple of fresh jokes to yeah. do it. I would be nervous that they were going to work or not going to work. But with the... Um, it's almost like... Because I do stand-up so much, I mean, I it, it's... I've done it for Muscle so long. Muscle memory, you know it works. Yes. I feel like I'm a pilot and, you know, I'm behind the controls. I'm just going to land the plane. I've done it before, you know. So I, I'm not nervous in the way that I was at the the previous Patriot Awards two years ago. I was presenting. I had to walk out. I had to hit my mark. Different skill set. Yep. Well, when I we're going to say goodbye to Tom Schlube. I'm going to
3: do it this way. I'm going to remind everyone that he is... Stand up comedian Tom Chaloux. That's right. Here on The Guy Benson Show. He will be doing stand up comedy (laughs) to warm up the crowd here at the Patriot Awards tonight. They start at 8 p.m. Eastern Time exclusively on Fox Nation. Tom, I'd say good luck, but sounds like you don't need it. You've got this thing ready to go. I got it. Go rock it, Tom. In the pocket. Tom Chaloux on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back with a home stretch next.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: Home stretch, Wednesday edition, Guy Benson Show, Hollywood, Florida. Thanks for listening, and it has been a show. Joey Jones, Annie McCarthy, Will Kane, Tucker, Tom Shalhoub, and now producer Christine. We needed at least one female voice on this show. For crying out loud, you've been very busy.
1: Oh, have I?
3: I thought you were going to maybe have an aneurysm getting Tucker up here.
1: I did. I, I was worried it wasn't going to happen.
3: Because I mentioned, I'm like, oh, that might be tough. You're like, do not give me a heart attack. I'm like, okay, I won't. It's going to work. And it did.
1: It did. But, yeah, it took, you saw the crowd that followed him.
3: Oh, there's like, you know, dozens of people show up.
1: And there's so many people downstairs. So
3: oh, I mean, thousands. Yeah. Right? There's thousands of people yeah. here. Uh, so we, I wanted to do this story with you because it's very stupid. And I'm sure we'll have a stupid debate about it. And I think it'll be fun. I'm
1: glad you think of me. Well, <laughs>
3: You know what I meant. <laughs> so I saw this uh, this game on Twitter, and I thought that we might actually, I don't know, maybe agree on this one. So here's how it goes. The instruction is you can only choose one pill. They've got different colored pills. You've got to pick one of them. The blue pill makes you immune to diseases. Oh. The red pill means that you never, ever need to use the bathroom ever again. The purple pill is that you only require half as much sleep as you currently do to, like, you know, for peak performance. So your your sleep gets cut in half. So I guess you, your days are longer, your productivity is a lot higher, or whatever. And then the black pill is you're always in shape regardless of diet and exercise. So I can talk you through my thought process on this. But there's also a, a, a fifth pill, the green pill, die instantly. Oh, which is I think just sort of the dark joke there let's let's eliminate die instantly uh, good idea yeah we're not interested in that here no. at the guy Benson show we're just we're too busy to die instantly so to me it's it's one of these four immune to diseases don't need to ever use the bathroom again cut your sleep needs in half where you're always in shape no matter what you eat or how much you exercise right out of the gate I'm throwing out the bathroom thing who cares
1: Exactly, like, and honestly, that's some reader. of my best alone time.
3: Is <laughs> in the bathroom, you're like yes. no, I need. Well,
1: especially when you have children.
3: <laughs> it's like mama's, the door. Mama needs some juice on her special, special seat.
1: Guy, don't knock it until you try it.
3: Okay, so we're both eliminating the bathroom one. It's yes. a kind of weird one. I understand the appeal of cutting your sleep time in half and still being like you know, unaffected. Because just imagine that. Think about all those extra hours and what you could do in terms of just your life and productivity or, like, maximizing fun also. Like, I get it. That's an appeal. But And some of the most successful people in the world require very little sleep. Like, this is well-known and well-documented. Some of, like, these extreme high achievers sleep three, four, five hours a night, no problem. I would be dragging. I could never do that.
1: Neither could I.
3: So I get it, but I'm also eliminating it because ultimately it's not that important. I'm with you so so far. To me, it comes down to immune to disease, or you're always in shape regardless of diet and exercise. And to me, there's a clearly correct answer, and then there's the answer that I'm still tempted to take, right? I think the clearly correct answer is you're immune from diseases, right? Because this could save your life. You could avoid cancer, for example, if you're predisposed or anything like that. This is just blanket immunity, and so you'd live a long, presumably, a long, healthy life or at least have a, have a much better chance, at least, of, of doing so. So to me, that, that should be the no-brainer. Like, give me that blue pill, no questions asked, I'll swig down some of this water and we're done. However, hmm. the shallow, superficial person in me is awfully tempted by the black pill, where I could just eat whatever I want not exercise, and it wouldn't matter because I'd be in shape. And by the way, I'm interpreting my interpretation of this is in shape means physically fit, like looking good, but also healthy, like in shape. So it's not like I would look fine, but my heart health would go to hell or anything like that. I'm, I'm interpreting this as like you are in very good shape and, and looking good regardless of food and exercise. That's a very tempting, a very tempting thing.
1: So I I agree with you, but I have I have my immediate okay. pick because I am such a hypochondriac. We all know this. I mean, how many times did I believe I had COVID? Oh,
3: you think that you have everything all the time.
1: And I didn't even want to say this to you, but last week when I was out because Megan was sick, I mean, I was texting Quiet Wyatt. I was spiraling. I'm like, here we go. She has it. I know she has it.
3: Which she didn't.
1: No, thank God.
3: And even if she did, she'd be fine because she's eight. Right. And you know this because you listen to the show every day and we talk about it. Yeah,
1: but when I spir— you know when I spiral, is just doesn't matter. So I'm going with the blue pill immune to diseases.
3: Because you would no longer convince yourself that you had things because you would know for a fact that you don't. So so you're going with the blue pill Mm -hmm. to be immune from diseases, not to be immune from diseases really, but to ease your own mind Mm -hmm. about having diseases that you don't have. That is a very strange way of getting to that answer, which I, I think objectively is the correct
1: answer. It's just on brand for me, don't you think?
3: I also feel like you would convince yourself that the blue pill wasn't working. Like, <laughs> I didn't no, even think about it. I pill, got the placebo. Placebo, I so I totally have COVID it. or whatever. That's, that's the issue.
1: Oh, man.
3: I, I'm going to say the blue pill is what I would take.
1: Oh, I thought you were going on for diseases, the black pill. The
3: black pill is, after a few drinks, I might go with the black pill.
1: So that's the thing. You were worried about how much you said you could eat whatever you want. I was thinking the alcohol I could have and now, because don't forget there's so many calories. When you're still
3: in shape. Yes. It's, you're, you're physically fine. I feel like you're talking yourself out of the blue oh. pill answer. We're out of time. You can let me know tomorrow if you want. Patriot Awards tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. Right back here tomorrow from Chicago. Yes, more travel. It's the Guy Benson Show. Good...
2: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk, fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
3: It is Thursday, November 18th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. You are listening live from Chicago, Illinois. Glad to have you here here from Chicago today and tomorrow. I'm Guy Benson, your host, political editor at townhall.com, and Fox News contributor. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need to know, the resources for the program right there. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. We are stacked again on the show with guests Joe Concha, Dr. Sapphire, David Drucker, Carol Markowitz, and more all upcoming. Fox News Alert as we begin. Stats, as we do every day, COVID cases confirmed in the U.S., 47.3 million. The real number is much higher. The death toll, Americans dying with or of COVID over the last 19 months, 766,206. The Dow is down roughly 45 points at this hour, trading at 35,884. We'll give you the final number for the day in our next hour. Joining us now to begin the program is the Republican leader in the United States Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Senator, it's good to have you back. Thanks for joining us.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad to be with you.
3: I want to start with this because I can hardly and scarcely believe that it's real, and yet it is real. We are seeing the House Democrats at least planning to try to get a vote in the next, let's say, 24, 48 hours, on the president's so-called Build Back Better bill, uh, this uh, human infrastructure, whatever they're going to call it, reconciliation, partisan, multi-trillion dollar spending spree. And based on what we are seeing from nonpartisan scorekeepers and analysts, this bill would raise taxes on millions of middle-class families while giving tax breaks to most millionaires, overwhelmingly in blue states. In the United States. So tax hikes for the middle class tax breaks for rich blue state taxpayers. And what's emerging today is the single biggest line item, the biggest expenditure in this bill, if you will, are those salt deductions, those tax breaks for the rich over the first five years of the bill. I know what the Democrats say, Senator, all the time, about what they would do on taxes. This seems to be exactly the opposite of it, and I feel like that's gotten pretty scant attention so far. Am I missing something here??
5: Well, uh, it hasn't got any lack of attention on our side. I mean what, you know, what, what's happening here, guys? The speaker is marching uh, the House Democratic Conference, at least those that put them in the majority, and swing say it's right off a cliff marching them right off a cliff, pursuing this ideological transformation of America into Bernie Sanders' vision of what the country ought to be. And you know, we already had a reaction from the public about how they feel about what these guys have been doing. We saw it in Virginia, even more importantly in New Jersey, where not even competitive races uh had enormous Republican support. It was a protest vote against Inflation and what the Democrats have been doing already all year.
3: And yet what we're seeing from some people is a downplaying of inflation, trying to explain actually it's not really so bad. And what we need to do to combat inflation and make everything feel better is to spend trillions of new dollars and new spending. It's just sort of amazing every time there's a new problem that crops up under this administration whether it's directly their fault indirectly their fault or some combination their giant spending bill magically is the solution for that problem as well i'm waiting for them to say that the border crisis will be solved by build back better i mean they're they're basically making that argument on all of the you know economic maladies right now that this is some silver bullet that they've got cooking the american people Don't seem terribly excited about it, but it feels like, at least on the House side, that's what they're going to try to do. Again, I'm not sure if they're going to have the votes. That's still up in the air. What do you think about your side? Let's say they do get this passed or something close to it passed. Then it comes over to the Senate side, and there are at least two of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle who have been not just tapping, but in some cases slamming the brakes on this process. Do you feel like whatever the House passes would be dead on arrival in the Senate?
5: Absolutely, but Manchin and Senator both said what the House does is irrelevant, which makes what the Speaker's doing to her own members even more outrageous. She's literally walking them off a cliff to support a bill that will never become law. And even if this reckless tax and spending spree ultimately in some form or another uh, clears uh, the Senate, even liberal economists who actually prefer from a policy point of view what the Democrats are trying to accomplish here are admitting, guy, that it will exacerbate the inflation problem both this year and next year. And inflation is the number one issue. Ninety percent of Americans are concerned or deeply concerned about inflation. That's the biggest issue. This this measure is totally unresponsive to what the American people are concerned about as they pull up to fill up their cars, as they go to the grocery store to try to prepare for Thanksgiving. The worst inflation in 30 years is on their minds, not more reckless tax and spending.
3: So some conservatives might say, "Okay, fair enough. We agree with that, Senator McConnell. However, a bunch of Republicans, several dozen, you were one of them in the Senate, and there was more than a dozen in the House voted for the infrastructure bill which the president signed into law this week and was touting it. I know that you've said it's, you think, a good piece of legislation, now a good law for your state, for the country. It, it does spend uh, quite a lot of money, and there are conservatives who are angry about that. The spending, whether this was necessary spending, handing a win to Biden, getting the votes, at least on the House side, that Pelosi needed to get the thing across the finish line. Uh, the former president Donald Trump, of course, uh, put out a few statements with some interesting new nicknames for you. I've always preferred Cocaine Mitch myself. But there's some criticism. You've heard it. What is your response to Republicans and conservatives, people in your own coalition who say this was a mistake?
5: Uh, Quite the opposite is the case. What it did was separate something that's popular, 75% of Americans want to see the infrastructure addressed from something that's unpopular, which was what they were left with after that, Secondly, my vote was contingent upon there not being any revisitation of the 2017 tax bill in the infrastructure bill. And there wasn't. Not a single uh, tax reduction item in the comprehensive tax bill of 2017 was altered in the infrastructure bill. And it was largely paid for. You could argue it wasn't fully paid for, uh, but it was overwhelmingly popular didn't raise taxes, and it separated out from the rest of the bill, the popular part, leaving them only to deal with what I would call the spinach, the sugar having already cleared.
3: Since you mentioned the 2017 tax reform bill that was signed into law by President Trump, passed by a Republican Congress, I just want to briefly stick there for a moment, because I I know it feels like we're sort of rehashing the past, but... The Democrats at that time threw everything they had to try to stop that legislation from passing. The media largely played along. This is so irresponsible. It's Armageddon. It's the end of the world. People are going to die. We're going to starve the government and a bunch of poor people are going to be out in the streets. And we saw, of course, massive growth in 2018 and 2019 before the pandemic sort of intervened and and slowed everything down to a halt. We also have seen record government revenues because of that growth and even a record haul from corporate tax rates this past year. I just think it's important to remember that so many of the arguments the Democrats were making passionately, angrily, confidently just a few years ago about the disaster of something that turned out to be actually quite helpful to the economy It's important to remember how wrong they were because they're making a lot of new claims now about their various adventures. And I feel like their their credibility should be measured based on their previous pronouncements about a really important piece of legislation. And I wonder how you feel about Republicans being able to maybe make that point without refighting that same old fight
5: again. Well, I think it's a point worth making. We got a report card on the success of the 2017 tax bill in February of 2020, one month before the pandemic hit. We had the best economy we would had in 20 years. And as you just pointed out, we cut corporate tax rates from 35 to 21, and revenue from corporate taxes went through the roof. It went up, not down. So everything they said about the 2017 tax bill was demonstrably and provably false. And they wanted to revisit that in the infrastructure bill. I said, we're not doing that. That was the key to getting 19 Republicans to support something that 75 percent of the American people think was in their best interest.
3: Senator McConnell, I know you're up on a hard stop here in just a moment. I do want to ask you this quickly. We've been asking some of our guests this week about it. Is there with Thanksgiving Exactly one week away. Is there a Thanksgiving tradition in your household and your family that is either unusual or particularly meaningful to you?
5: Well, it's probably not different from any other family. But as we gather around the table, we obviously count our blessings. And not only the health of our family is front and center, But the blessing of being in the greatest country ever. And it's a, you know, the efforts of many, particularly woke people on the hard left, to run down this country make me angry. Um, I'm sure if they're this unhappy about America, there'd be other countries that would be happy to take them. Uh, But I'm among those who find myself among the luckiest people in the world to be in the United States of America.
3: That is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He would like to be the majority leader again. That might happen based on some of the polling that we've seen just in the last few weeks. Sir, we will talk about the political environment in a future conversation, but for now, we will leave it there. Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, we appreciate it as always. Thanks, Bob. We will take a break. We will be right back. There's a new poll. I just referenced it. It is, once again, absolutely brutal for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Details next on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. And I referenced it right before the break there with Senator McConnell because he is just barely the minority leader in the U.S. Senate. 50-50 split And some of the polling public opinion stuff that we've seen just in the last, let's say, month has been gruesome, just dreadful for the Democratic Party, for President Biden, for Democratic leaders. And if it were just polls, you might say, well, we don't believe the polls. Although a lot of the polling mistakes and misses in recent years have been in the direction Of the Republicans, right? At least the outcomes, right? The, I should say, Republicans outperformed the polls is the point I'm making there. So if the polls are terrible for Democrats, you might say, well, the reality must be worse for the Democrats. But we also have results. That's a point McConnell just made. We have results from New Jersey. We have results, of course, from Virginia. We have a number of other races around the country, special elections, Texas comes to mind, party switches, school board elections, judicial elections, Pennsylvania, right? The winds are blowing in one direction and the polls are picking that up. Now, whenever we talk about the polling, we acknowledge what it's pre Thanksgiving here, 2021. And the voting for the midterms won't happen until post-Halloween 2022. So we've got quite a ways to go. And who knows what kind of fluctuations may occur, ups and downs and twists and turns and all of that, between now and then. However, as things stand, it just keeps getting uglier in some ways for President Biden. Remember the theory that, oh, it'll start to rebound. We'll see a little bit of a rebound or, you know, an improvement in fortunes for Biden and the Democrats after the infrastructure bill passes. Well, and after it's signed and they make a big hullabaloo out of that and people say, oh, good, they're getting something done. We like this. This is popular. There's a jobs report that was pretty good a couple weeks ago. Well, all of that has come and gone. And now there's a new poll from Quinnipiac, which has been blue-tinted, Heavily in recent years. And they have Biden at his worst level yet. His approval rating is 36%. Disapproval, 53%. He's underwater by 17 points. With a majority disapproving. And when you look at strong approve, strong disapprove, I mean, it is a blowout. The intensity is heavily slanted. In the wrong direction, if you're Joe Biden. Inside this poll, a few other notes from it. Republicans overwhelmingly disapprove, unsurprisingly. Democrats overwhelmingly approve, unsurprisingly. What about those all-important independents who went for the Republicans pretty heavily a few weeks ago, Virginia, New Jersey, and elsewhere? Who went against Trump, right? They voted for Trump. In 2016, by a bit, independents did. Then they turned against him for 2020. In these purple states and battleground districts, independents often make the difference. Right there's an intensity situation where you've got the base turnout game, and both parties try to turn out their people. And then there are the folks that seesaw the actual results back and forth. That's why they're called swing elections. It sort of it does swing back and forth like a pendulum. Well, the Independents are swinging, and they're swinging hard right now. In this new poll, Quinnipiac, Joe Biden's approval rating as president is 20, 29 percent, 29 percent among independents. Fifty six percent disapprove. Br- I mean, brutal. That's uh, 27 points underwater among independents. Now, how does that translate? Looking ahead to 2022, they asked the generic ballot question that we've been following. And as we usually point out, Republicans don't traditionally do well on that metric. They're doing very well at the moment. And there was the Suffolk poll, USA Today, Republicans up eight on the generic ballot. Oh, that's an outlier. That seems a little too crazy. Let's wait and see. Is that a trend or is that an outlier? Must be an outlier. Well, then came the Washington Post poll, ABC News. Republicans up 10 on the generic ballot. Here's another poll that has the Republicans up eight on the generic ballot. Just suffice it to say, if it is anywhere in the Republicans' lead realm, let alone by eight or 10 points, it will be an extremely painful election for the Democrats. Plus eight on the generic ballot right now is a really good place for Republicans to be, especially in a Quinnipiac poll. They asked about the Senate. Republicans up six on Senate control, and that's probably an even bigger advantage in the key battleground states where there will be Senate elections, where Republicans have like a 20-point lead, according to the Washington Post. So our last guest, Mitch McConnell, is the minority leader for now. If these trends continue, there's a very good chance he'll be majority leader within a year. It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: From Chile, Chicago, it's the Guy Benson Show. You know, I lived in this city for seven years. And you would think I would have learned my lesson by now. That even in mid-November, I would need a very heavy winter coat. Not merely some jackets and pullovers. That's what I have. Then I roll in and it's like 32 degrees when we land. So I'll be borrowing a coat, I think. It's cold. Joining us now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist for The Hill, and his beat is the media. And there's some very interesting stories and developments on this front. Uh, Joe, welcome back to the show.
0: Oh, thanks, Guy. You know, I decided to stay in South Florida for a couple of weeks. I, I couldn't go back, so uh, I'm just uh, at this little pool, a little hotel that you may be familiar with, and it's, it's lovely. Thank you.
3: Well, enjoy that. I actually flew in from Florida today, and there's a dramatic... Uh, Drop in temperature, among other things. So let's talk about what happened in the Rittenhouse trial today, where all of a sudden there was a, a bit of a stir. We don't have a verdict or anything like that yet. What we do have is the judge making an announcement about a very strange situation, apparently an encounter between local police and some sort of journalist who appeared to be tracking the jurors and following the bus that the jury was on. And we have the audio from the courtroom. Here is the judge explaining what happened. Let's listen first to cut
7: 35. Last evening, um, a person who identified himself as James G. Morrison and who claimed that he was a producer with NBC News employed uh, for MSNBC, Um, and under the supervision of a person, what's going on? Oh, okay, Uh, under the supervision of someone named Irene Bayon in New York uh, for MSNBC, uh, the police, when they stopped him because he was following in a distance of about a a black and uh, went through a red light. Pulled him over and inquired of him what was going on, and he gave that information and stated that he had been instructed by Ms. Byron in New York to follow the jury bus.
3: To follow the jury bus. This is someone working, it sounds like, in the employ of MSNBC, directed by someone at MSNBC in New York to follow the jury. Follow the juror bus, or the bus filled with jurors. Uh, The judge continued Cut 36.
7: Uh, the matter is uh, under further investigation at this point, point. Um, and the media has asked questions about it. That's the latest I have, um, and he was ticketed for uh, violating a traffic control signal. Uh, he's not here today from what I'm told, and um, I have instructed that no one from MSNBC news will be permitted in this building for the duration of this trial. Uh, This is a very serious matter, and I don't know what the ultimate truth of it is, but absolutely it it would go without much thinking that someone who is following the jury bus, uh, that is a very, it's extremely serious matter, and uh, will be referred to the uh, proper authorities for further
3: action. Okay, Joe Conscious, so from what we've gleaned so far, and there are some updates here as well, there was this MSNBC employee or someone related to MSNBC allegedly following the jury bus. He told when the police stopped him, he told the police that he was instructed by his higher-ups at MSNBC to do precisely that. The judge has now barred MSNBC from the courthouse for the duration of the trial. And NBC is basically admitting on some level that there is some truth to this, although there are denials, quasi-denials at least, that they've put out. Here's a statement from NBC. Quote, last night a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed or intended to photograph them. Uh, The statement goes on. So that seems like a very lawyerly denial because they're saying, well, he wasn't going to try to contact them during deliberations. That does not mean that he wasn't trying to gather information about who these people were to then contact them after the trial to try to secure an interview or something like that. And there are apparently other reporters saying things like this do happen. What can you tell us about what we have learned about this circumstance and what's happened, the judge's reaction to it, and sort of the media's reaction to what went down here, because clearly eyebrows have been raised.
0: Yeah, Guy, well, the judge has banned not just MSNBC, but NBC News from the courtroom, as you said, calls this a very serious matter. And look, here's what we're supposed to believe. A producer from a network that has clearly and repeatedly declared Kyle Rittenhouse guilty well before this trial began and during it. A network that has called Rittenhouse a racist, that has called The Judge a racist. That producer from that network just happened to be driving near the jury bus, runs a red light, mind you, gets pulled over, and he wasn't to stay there. Close. To
3: stay close to the jury bus, by the way. Right, I mean, that would make sense.
0: Thank you. And 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 he wasn't there to follow the bus to I.D. the jury to take photographs, perhaps, of the jury or perhaps their car's license plates, so they can get interviews afterwards. And that's what a court TV reporter is arguing that, oh, this happens all the time. So after a verdict comes down, then you can find the jury and you can get an interview with them. Maybe the jury doesn't want to be found, particularly in a case like this where it's so highly charged. Uh, So much
3: misinformation, including a lot of misinformation, as you note, coming from MSNBC.
0: Big time. And meanwhile, okay why run the red light, right? That's one question. What is the sense of urgency if you're not following the jury bus? You don't want it to get away. But but meanwhile, also, the person who the producer here claimed ordered the code red, so to speak, the, the producer said go follow that bus back in New York where, it was, where she was located. Her name is Irene Bayon. She has since nuked her social media accounts. Now, when you do that, that means you're hiding. You don't want to take any questions. Maybe you got caught. So, look, this is beyond dangerous. We don't have to state the obvious. The president oh, by the way, wouldn't interesting
3: that if this msnbc uh, producer or booker or executive whoever this person is if they want to be left alone in private i wonder what she thinks about the desire of jurors to be left alone in private after you know being involved in a case like this right the privacy seems uh, high up on her list for herself maybe not so much for these jurors because i guess that's the story here let's just let's just stop for a second And I don't want to say anything where I'm out over my skis or making totally declarative statements before we have all the facts. But just common sense, Joe, it makes no sense that this person working for a news organization who is saying that he was told to follow the jury bus by MSNBC. It makes no sense that this is a coincidence. He was, of course, following the jury bus to try to figure out who these people are in order to get interviews with them afterwards because there's so much attention on the trial. The idea that the way that this is phrased by NBC News, a freelancer received a traffic citation. First of all, the freelancer thing is like trying to distance themselves from this person. But if the freelancer is working under the direction of higher up people at the network, the fact that this is kind of like a gopher doesn't matter. This is what the what the network apparently has ordered. That's number one. Oh, the, the traffic violation took place near the jury van, but there was no contact, and there was no intent to photograph or contact these people during deliberations. I think that they kind of give away the game here in this statement where they try to distance themselves from this dude, and then on this Really narrow technicality, try to pretend that he wasn't doing exactly what he was doing by using the words. During deliberations, right? I I think that it's pretty clear to me, at least, that what this guy told the police he was doing was exactly what he was doing because he was told to do it. And any deflection here and sort of it's not even a denial, right? It's, It's a lot of words put in such an order, probably by the lawyers over there, to make it seem to average people at least somewhat confusing and give the impression that there might have been some strange coincidence here, I would be shocked if there was any sort of a coincidence. I think this is, is exactly what it looks like it is.
0: It is what it is, the, the saying that it we is all hate, right? Yep. Uh, and, and that was great because I hadn't picked up on that during deliberations. Oh, this is after, I guess, they left the courtroom, so maybe I, I, you're right about that. That that was a very carefully worded statement, and I think they think now it's going to go away. I, I, I can't wait to watch uh, Nicole Wallace and Joy Reid tonight, the, the two biggest perpetrators of all the lies that have been told about Kyle Rittenhouse, the people that keep injecting race into, and I'm sure you've talked about this, into a case where one white guy shot three other white guys and race is now the central issue for many in our media that that is just remarkable to me well nbc uh,
3: news speaking of nbc news they've got an opinion piece up right now (laughs) which is arguing that this is a racial case and for a lot of black people they're about to be re-traumatized because you've got first they it's like a two-step thing they say the murder of a black person and then the trial but setting aside that thesis if it fit the facts it doesn't fit the facts here. It's all white people. It's, it is a very, very weird compulsion, Joe, for me, that a lot of people have this obsession. They, they seem almost to weirdly fetishize racial disharmony and, and racial strife in the context of, of killings or a trial like this. And they are so addicted to that that they're willing to insert that narrative into a story where, It does not have any bearing on the actual people involved, defendant and deceased.
0: It's like the movie Dumb and Dumber, except that was fiction, and this is real life, and it has real consequences when you stoke these the the these racial tensions. Again, here it's like you're taking something is that's completely irrelevant to the case and injecting it in. We saw it in Virginia, guy, right? Where you have Glenn Youngkin, he wins this race on education, and he wins it on the economy. Winsome Sears becomes the first female black lieutenant governor in the state to any female actually of of color to win stateside Uh, then you have an attorney general uh who's latino uh, that wins as well and all we hear about is how white supremacists are the ones that put them into office and when they're confronted on particularly winsome sears are like well she's really a ventriloquist for white supremacy even though she's black she's not really black so you could take almost any situation where there's a lot of media attention and the msnbcs and cnn's of the world will inject race into it because they think that it's going to resonate with their audiences, but I look at the numbers and MSNBC. I'm sorry, CNN's down 80%, CNN's down 65 70% since the beginning of the year. It's the boy who cried wolf and nobody's listening anymore. That whistle is, is gone.
3: By the way, Joe, I have to point out when you were just going into that piece about Virginia, you had a little bit of a A slip, almost Freudian, where you referred to, you corrected yourself, but you started to call her Winsome Smears, which actually is sort of appropriate, (laughs) given what was done to her by a lot of these people, including on the air at MSNBC. And just to repeat, NBC has this very, um, I would say, squirrely, slippery statement that they've put out about this incident involving the jury bus, the jury van. Their network has been thrown out of the courthouse altogether for the remainder of the trial. The jury is still in deliberations that uh, trial. Um, a lot of people very eager to see what ends up happening there, and uh, people vigilant for any sign that perhaps there's some sort of conclusion that the jury has reached. In the meantime, Joe, I'm not even sure if I want to play you this soundbite just because I'm not sure how much oxygen I want to give this guy, but the the media guy over at CNN who seemingly his entire job is just to watch Fox News and be mad about it all the time. He makes the same points basically every day, high dudgeon, very self-righteous, deeply self-unaware almost all the time. Uh, he had another one of these diatribes, I guess it was last night, saying Fox News divides the country and there's no more truth anymore and, you know, all this stuff. Um, You know, we might as well. Uh, Here's cut 37.
8: Well, I think it's splitting the culture into two. That there is no single shared culture, no single shared reality. And I think all of us feel that in our personal lives, you know, whether we feel it at Thanksgiving next week, we just feel it, you know, kind of more commonly or more casually when talking about school meetings, when talking about what students are learning, when talking about where people are getting information. It is a, a splintering of one culture into two where you have these Republicans uh, who are making the argument that they are under attack from the left, and mm-hmm. that is the narrative on Fox, which I, I think is really—it's not pro-Trump anymore. It's anti-Biden. The best way to view these right-wing outlets is they're anti-Biden in every way, shape, and form. They're not airing Biden's events live. They ignore his events. They only focus on the news that makes the party look good. They do not talk about the Gosar video. You know, Fox barely mentioned the Gosar video today.
3: Uh Fox did mention the Gosar video. They followed the Gosar vote on the censure. We talked about it here on this show, Biden events. We dip in and out of them all the time on this show. Uh, they stream them live on FoxNews.com. You know, it's it, so the way that he's characterizing what Fox does and does not cover is not correct. Uh, the idea that Fox is just some propaganda arm for the Republican party, um, Especially coming from this guy at CNN and what they do on a day in and day out basis. It's like Fox is responsible for the splintering of this culture. Like they bear no responsibility for any of this stuff. They're, you know, just pure as the wind driven snow. It's, it's pretty hard to, to stomach. And yet this is what most of the media believes about Fox and more importantly believes or deludes themselves into believing about themselves. Your reaction, Joe.
0: Sure. Uh look, I think we're in the same boat guy, and this is a good boat to be in. Whenever I'm on the air, and since I'm kind of a, a media guy along with, with Howie Kurtz at, at at Fox when we have to talk about media stuff, um I don't say his name. I don't want to say his name. It's a Bill Parcells rule. Bill Parcells, the old coach of uh, the Giants and the Cowboys, and he would never say Terrell Owens' name because Owens, you know, was was a problem and he felt like that would be a good way to disrespect him and motivate him. So he said, oh, you know, the receiver was late for another meeting today. The receiver went over the middle and, and refused to extend to catch a ball, and it drove Terrell Owens crazy. I refuse to say Stelter's name on the air. I'm saying it now just to, just to make a point uh, because I don't want to give him any oxygen either because he is a liar. He's a liar. He said that Fox doesn't carry Bidens speeches live? Of course they do. He. This is a guy, three days after Trump got in office, and this really caught my attention, he said that there were hundreds of swastikas that were being found around the country, and 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 not even CNN was reporting that. And he based it on like a Media Matters like kind of report and never apologized for it. This is a guy who put a, a guest on his air not too long ago who said that Trump was responsible for more deaths than Mao, Hitler, and who was the other one? Stalin combined. And then Stelter doesn't step into do anything and then he gets criticized for so well, I mean, said, which oh, is no, wild audio which is out. completely
3: i this? mean just you know i do remember that one it's you know tens of millions of people I mean, craziness I, I last thing i think it's also adorable the underlying assumption that airing biden's speeches live would help him i mean that's the that's the underlying assumption there it's like oh if we only carried it people would love it people have seen more than enough of this president so far, and that's why his approval ratings are where they are. We talked about that earlier in the hour. Joe Concha, our colleague at Fox News, here on the Guy Benson Show. Much to get you As always, Joe, we appreciate it.
0: Guy, good to see you, man. Enjoy Chicago. Go to a place called Gibson's. You'll love the steak.
3: (laughs) We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: And it's an honor for me as governor to be able to welcome the Fox Nation Patriot Awards to the freest state in these United States.
3: It's the Guy Benson Show. That was Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida last night. Huge welcome for him at the Patriot Awards. We'll talk more about our experience there later in the show. DeSantis today signing legislation banning mandates in a town called Brandon, Florida. Not a coincidence, I suspect. Another hour coming up. Happy Hour on a Friday here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, the podcast, free every day. And The Happy Hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, 21 plus only, as always, drink responsibly, TheLongDrink.com. It's delicious. Find out where it's sold near you, TheLongDrink.com. So a few weeks ago, here on The Guy Benson Show, we were talking about one of producer Christine's bad dreams that she was having. And over the course of that nonsense conversation, my brain took an off-ramp and went down the path of dreams. And I remembered it just flickered, a documentary that I had watched now probably a year or a year and a half ago called Dream Killer, which is now available on Netflix. And it was about this guy who spent a decade in prison for a murder he did not commit. And it turned out that I actually have, through my husband, a family connection to this guy and I found the documentary honestly one of the most shocking things I've ever seen I could not believe that what happened to my next guest would be possible in the United States of America under our criminal justice system which we all know is imperfect and needs improvement but you hope would have enough safeguards to avoid the absolute travesty that occurred years ago Ryan Ferguson Spent nearly 10 years, as I mentioned, in prison. He was wrongfully convicted of a 2001 murder in his hometown, Columbia, Missouri. It was a sports journalist, if I recall correctly, who was murdered in a parking lot. At the time of the murder, Ferguson was 17 years old and in high school. He was arrested two years later based on evidence that is not evidence. And he was convicted on that fake evidence. He is now, thank God out of prison because really of the work of one person who is also in studio with me today. Ryan now is roughly my age, a few months apart. He's a certified personal trainer. He's an advocate against false convictions, which would make sense. I think I might dedicate my life to that, too, if I were in his shoes. I think i might be a lot angrier, frankly, and more bitter of a person if I went through what he went through. He's author of the book Stronger, Faster, Smarter, A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. Ryan Ferguson, we'll get to your father here in a second, but I'm delighted to meet you. It's sort of surreal having watched this movie. It's like it's like you're a celebrity in my mind. I'm grateful that you spent some time and came in studio here to join us.
9: Yeah, Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And really any opportunity to discuss our criminal justice system, which is inherently good, but does have flaws and, and we can discuss what can and needs to be fixed within that system. It's a, it's a great opportunity.
3: So let's just talk through the basics of the case. And I would strongly encourage folks who are listening right now, do yourself a favor, make an appointment with your Netflix subscription and watch Dream Killer, honestly, and just buckle up. But for people who may not have netflix or what have you we don't have to go into the entire story but just give us the big bullet points the timeline you're a high school student someone gets murdered in your hometown two years later you get arrested
9: why great question uh you know i often ask myself that same question why uh so a murder happened when i was in high school you don't really think much about it you know that happens in in your town and Uh, it was weird. I remember, you know, people were like, wow, that's a Halloween night. Somebody's murdered. That's all you think about it for two years. And then I'm arrested. They don't tell me why. And they don't even tell me what for. I have midterms the next day. I'm more concerned with my midterms than talking to the police. I'm like, they're just going to do their job. Ask me what they got to ask me. And then I'll go home. Uh, long story short, a friend of mine from high school had a dream about the murder unbeknownst to me. And he literally tells the police, if I did it, Ryan, I'm Ryan, must have been with me. And that's what I was arrested on. That's why they started questioning me. And A dream. This is why it's called Dream Killer. Correct.
3: A friend of yours from home had a dream that he may have committed this murder, and if he did it, if, you did it with him. Correct. And you get arrested. To me, that's wild, even to just get arrested. Let alone all the steps forward to conviction, which obviously happened, because you end up in prison for 10 years you must have still felt like okay well this is clearly a wrongful arrest this is going to get cleared up somehow i mean i didn't do this this is crazy dreams are not evidence what the hell is going on at what point did you start to realize uh oh this might turn into something where i could go to prison based on like testimony quote-unquote of a quote-unquote co-conspirator based on a
9: dream? That's a great question. I, You know, it, it took time to realize what was really happening to me. Whenever I was picked up and questioned, I didn't realize at the time that I was under arrest. I mean, they arrested me without an investigation. So I was arrested, and then they investigated. So for months and months, evidence would come out, and it would all show that I was innocent or I was not there. It would help prove my case. And I'm in the county jail at this time. And my bond, I didn't have bond for nine months. And then they gave me a $20 million bond. $20 million. $20 million. Other people with the same charge had a bond for $500,000. Mine was $20 million. So you can see that they were biased against me. It wasn't about right and wrong and, and a fair hearing, essentially. It was about trying to prove a point that we are going to arrest you, we're going to put you in prison, and you're a horrible person without having done any investigation. So every time evidence would come back, like the tire tool that they tried to say was used, and it showed that it was not used and it had nothing to do with the crime. As the weapon. As the weapon, correct. Uh, It had nothing to do with the crime. It would come back, and I'm like, okay, they're going to come open the doors and let me out of this cage and back into society because now they can see that I'm innocent. And time after time, things like that would happen, and they never opened those doors. And so months of my life went by, year of my life went by, and then I realized it doesn't matter what evidence proves my innocence, they're going to try to convict me no matter what.
3: We're going to get to how this all finally unraveled and how you did get out in a second, but talk about the conviction. Talk about that moment where the jury decides that you are guilty of something that you did not do based on evidence that is, I mean, flimsy doesn't even begin to cover the evidence that i put in air quotes that they had against you and yet it was enough in this trial to send you away you have this this sort of shock i'm sure this numbness of i just got convicted you then go to prison and then as a follow up question at what point does prison start to feel normal for you because it wasn't just a few months it was a decade a prime decade of your life, you are you know, in your 20s. Yes. Your 20s were stolen from you.
9: 19 to 29, uh, all my 20s, basically. And the and the question about trial and being convicted, uh, it's a very interesting one to me because as I'm sitting there and they're presenting this quote-unquote evidence, the prosecution knows I'm innocent. He knows the evidence that he's putting forth is not it accurate. Remind us of his name. Kevin Crane. Kevin Crane. Who is still a judge. He's now a judge, Yeah, Has not been held accountable for his actions, which are... A lot of actions that you can prove that he knows he put on perjured testimony, people he knew was lying to put me in prison for really 40 years. Fortunately, I only did 10. But uh, if it were up to him and we up to the Columbia police who also know I'm innocent, I would still be in prison wasting away until I'm in my mid 50s. So that's that's hard to, to fathom. And while I'm in trial and they're lying to the jury, I'm looking back at the people the jury and the people in the the audience there, and they're looking at me like I'm some kind of caged animal. And it was the worst feeling you can imagine, because I'm just a normal kid, I was in college, and now these people are looking at me like I'm some disgusting thing, you know? Mm. And it's the look on these people's faces is, it was the hardest thing for me to get over. And I knew there. I basically had no chance because my attorney was not very good. Kevin Crane. Well,
3: that is a very kind way of putting it. I would say <laughs> yeah. we'll get into that in a second. My yeah. goodness.
9: Yeah. And Kevin Crane, the prosecutor who was knew corrupt, who was,
3: was corrupt. That's the only was way. Was and is is. I mean, I don't know. You can't shed that stain if you do something like that. That is a lifelong mark of corruption in my book. Certainly. And it blows my mind that he. Still has a job at all in the law, that he still is a member of the bar, let alone a judge, which I think speaks poorly of everyone involved in that process. Quickly on the prison stuff. Certainly. Because we are creatures of habit and routine. At some point, your life, your routine, your habit became that of an inmate. Um, You know, you're a young guy, you're a good looking guy, prison is a scary place. How did you make that adjustment? What were your coping mechanisms? How did you survive? Because to me, it's like you have to survive. You're there. It would be hard enough if, if you were there and you deserved it. You were there and you didn't deserve it. And there's a bunch of people in prison who say, oh, I didn't do it, right? That's, that's a common trope. In your case, you actually didn't do it and the, and the trial was an absolute sham. How did you have the mental ability, sort of the mental fortitude to survive for a decade behind bars?
9: Great question. And uh, I can honestly say it all goes back to family and the support and the strength that they gave me, the advice. When I first got arrested, it was the second day, I think. I was talking to my father on the phone and he said, Man, obviously I do anything I can to help protect you, but I can't be in there with you. You have to do everything that you can to make yourself stronger, faster, and smarter if you want to survive this. And I did. I started working out that day, I started reading every day. Uh, that day, I, I mean, I I spent six hours a day reading and two hours a day working out, and so that kind of helped me get over some of the mental and physical barriers that I probably would have had uh, dealing with a lot of really bad people. And so, going to prison, as terrifying as it was, I was somewhat prepared because I was smarter than a lot of the people there because I've been working on myself. I had two years in the county jail to prepare, and I was bigger than most people. So. Basically, it's like the bear in the woods theory, I, I think. And it's like, as, as long as I have somebody in the woods with me that's slower than me, I'm going to be safe, right? Mm. And prison's full of people who are dumber and weaker than I was. And I kind of leaned on that, you know? I, uh, if you just stay out of a lot of bad things, uh, gambling, some of the weird sex things that go on there, like, it's a weird, strange world. As long as you stay out of those kind of corners... And you're going to be okay, and other people are going to find the problems, and and you can just kind of exist.
3: Ryan, let's hold it right there. Let's take a break. When we come back, one of the most amazing elements of this story is your relationship with your father. We will bring in your father as soon as we come back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
5: A
3: special hour on The Guy Benson Show. Ryan and Bill Ferguson joining me in studio. Ryan spent 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And, Ryan, you were talking about family and support. Let's bring in your dad. Bill Ferguson, father of Ryan, who is the hero of this movie. He's the hero of this story. I cannot tell you, sir, how much respect I have for you. (laughs) I mean, what is so incredible about this story, it's not just about grave injustice, and it is. It is also about some of the most incredible determination that I've ever seen. And you knew that your son was innocent. The world did not know that. The world had passed this whole thing by. He's rotting away in prison. You never got over it. You never allowed it really to be the new normal. You could not stand that this injustice was happening to your son. Talk about the process, the decisions that you made, and how you went about setting this right.
10: Well, again, that's a great uh, great question, Guy. Um, when the process started, we were all shocked. The whole family it was, it was totally shocked. I just couldn't believe something like that could happen. And um, so within 24 hours, I realized this is real. And I know enough about the law that uh, you have to, if you depend on a lawyer or other people to rectify it, then you're going to be very disappointed. So I knew Uh, that I was going to have to get busy. I would have to investigate the case myself. Was
3: this after the conviction?
10: No, no. This is the arrest. before, okay. The arrest. And I did even more after the conviction. But uh, one of the first things I got was what's called discovery. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, they don't want to give it to you. I mean, uh, we had to— It's what
3: the prosecution has. It's what they have as as evidence, and you have a right to
10: see it. that, That is correct. Uh, But it's difficult to get, even though you have a right to it. And uh, we uh, had to get the judge uh, to compel the prosecutor to give us uh, the discovery, which we deserve, which we should have by law. And finally, finally, she gave uh, him an ultimatum uh, that he had a a week to to give us the discovery. Once I got the discovery, which is uh, thousands of pages, or maybe I should say hundreds, a couple thousand pages, uh, I just read through that syllable by syllable familiarizing myself with the case, seeing how it happened, how it all came together. And then we started putting our case together.
3: Your son, Ryan, who we've been speaking to here on The Guy Benson Show, was, uh, I'd say, extremely, exceedingly polite when he referred to his defense attorney as perhaps lackluster. (laughs) Uh, I was cringing, cringing as I watched this documentary, some of the courtroom scenes where it it was just – mind-bending incompetence like what what are you doing do you, did you do any preparation at all for this and this prosecutor who was i would i would almost use the word evil was also pretty sharp and could run circles around this person mm. and convince the jury of something that didn't happen if that's how i was feeling watching it knowing the outcome i cannot fathom the frustration to put it mildly, that you must have been feeling sitting there in the courtroom watching this, like, what are you what are you doing?
10: Well, it is shocking, uh, especially when you're experiencing it firsthand and knowing there's nothing you can do about it because of the process. It's like a car going off a cliff. Uh, you're in the car, you're going off the cliff, and you know what's going to happen next. It's going to be a crash. Yeah, but you're and in the back seat. Then you're in the back seat. You can't even reach the street. Well, even if you could, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's where you are in court. You, ha- you have... Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I'm in the backseat. I cannot get hold of the steering wheel, and even if I could, I couldn't steer the, the car back up the cliff.
3: Right, and it's the Grand Canyon in this case because your son's right. going to prison for murder, a murder he didn't commit. Correct. So he's now in prison. Right. On the say-so of this other guy who's also in prison, right, who right. clearly has all sorts of issues. When you see him in the documentary, he's he is – uh, you know, a character and sort of this this tragic person. And I, I imagine there's probably some anger towards him. I, how could there not be? What were a few of the turning points? Because getting a conviction overturned is actually really hard, as you know. I mean, you went on this nationwide tour. <sighs> You're driving a car around, begging people to pay attention to the case of your son. And it actually worked, but not for a long time, through setback after a setback. But then, at last... The thing started to turn. The ship started to turn. How did you turn the ship?
10: You know, I, uh, as a kid, I used to watch a show it was called Good Smoke. And in almost um, uh, every show, they'd have a cattle stampede. The cows would run off, and the, the, the cowboys would get out in front of them and turn the herd, turn you know back. And, and that's the way it is in a trial. Uh, being convicted or being charged it's a cattle stampede and good luck on stopping the cattle stampede you've got to turn the herd how do you do that well it turns out i did a uh, a story with the local newspaper and he was very sympathetic to our situation after i showed him the evidence and he goes i i think that your son's being wrongfully uh charged i said "Thank this you is the journalist the local journalist. journalist see this and, is
3: where this is where journalism really can Do good in this world. That's why a lot of people get into journalism, because when the truth is on your side, sometimes the media, because they get demonized, and I think (laughs) they deserve it a lot of the time. Sometimes they do a lot of good. And I think it's safe to say you, Ryan, would still be in prison today, if not for the press.
10: Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, we wrote the story, and I did something a little unusual. I I said to the uh, the reporter, he was the top reporter for the Tribune the the for the, the, uh, the person had worked that had died, and I uh, uh, he wanted to do the it. murder
3: victim yes. had worked at that. Okay. Yeah,
10: and uh, so he he I, I said, you know, I, I'd like to do the interview with you, but I I do have a stipulation. He goes, okay, well, what is it? I said, well, uh, I want to read your print before you put it out he goes oh, we don't do that you don't understand i go well you don't understand if i cannot do that there's going to be a really short interview and he goes this is the biggest case that's happened in boone county and i really want to be a part of it i want to write the story i said and i'd like for you to but i want i'm not i'm not looking at your print uh not looking at your story to be critical or try to get you to change i just want to make sure what you put in there is correct and he goes that's it i said yeah I said, he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll send you uh, my draft and let you see how it goes. He goes, I've never done this before. Mm. but but uh,
3: Extenuating sorry. circumstances.
10: And he goes, I, I do want the story. And he goes, I, I, your reputation precedes you. I know you won't do it uh, unless, mm. unless you get your way. Yeah, You're said, a, okay.
3: very stubborn, but you had to, be, I right? had to be. If you were not stubborn, Ryan would be in prison still. I think so. Our conversation with Ryan and Bill Ferguson continues after this on The Guy Benson Show. <laughs>
2: about the issues you care about guy benson
3: it's a special happy hour on the guy benson show thank you for listening ryan and bill ferguson in studio talking about this shocking wrongful conviction and finally justice what actually turned it what finally shook loose where you could prove the stuff that you knew to be true how are you finally able to prove it and also in such a way that it was like eligible for appeal because some things may prove seemingly that someone is innocent, but under the rules of evidence and under the law, it actually doesn't count. And and it's not something where you would have standing to challenge something. So how did you get around that? What was the tipping point or tipping points?
10: Well, uh, so that story, he wrote five parts, and it came to Manhattan. It came to uh, 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 48 Hours. And And the producer saw it, and the producer thought, we'd like to do the story. So they contacted me, and they said, we'd like to come to Columbia and and talk to you about this story. So they said, what should we do? I said, let's walk the crime scene. And I had a huge three-ring notebook with all the information in it. Yeah, I remember. And and, and so we walked the crime scene, and I said, now right over here, uh, uh, the police did such and such. And um, uh, the reporter said, now, how, how do you know that, Mr. Ferguson? And I said, oh, it's in Police Report 254. She goes, do you have Police Report 254? c yeah, it's right here. She goes, okay. So we went around the whole tour like that, and then we got back to the car where we started. Uh, she goes, could we have a copy of that? And I go, this is your copy. I gave her the entire notebook because <laughs> I anticipated that they would want that. The thing that made it unique, and I you know, look, look at a lot of those crime shows, the thing that made this unique is that uh, uh, I was able to, to give them documented evidence and ryan and i said right from the very beginning we're not going to say or do anything unless we can document it we're not going to get into rumors innuendos we're not going to talk badly about people we're only going to talk about the facts if we cannot use documentation then we're not going to talk about it and so by date line, our 40 hours looking at the uh police reports that's the documentation then that gave them the courage to go forth and really get into this case because now it's not based on people crying and upset and, you know, acting right, like It's not that.
3: emotions and feelings. It's some verifiable facts. Right. And and, uh, and there, were, there were eyewitnesses.
10: Right. right.
3: So it wasn't just the dream. It wasn't like, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man had a dream. This other guy over here, the defendant, was in the dream and therefore sent him to prison. They found some witnesses who claimed that Ryan Ferguson was there and— and that also was a big shift in this case when they started to recant. Someone reached out to you, right?
10: Yes. Uh, well, several people. Uh, one in particular, uh, we created a webpage, and I, I, I knew sooner or later that somebody would get on, onto the computer and would get onto the webpage, and she did. And she goes, I'd like to talk to you sometime. And I met her at the crime scene, uh, like, uh, uh was after the trial, actually. and uh, And she said, I just want to tell you Uh, face-to-face, that that was not your son. That was not Ryan Ferguson there. And uh, I said, Jill, you are 100% certain that my son, Ryan Ferguson, was not the person uh, that was at the crime. She goes, absolutely. I said, okay, great. So that led us to... And the prosecutor knew that.
9: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Ryan
3: wants to jump in.
9: Yeah, I'd love to jump in here because the prosecution knew that... She told that to the prosecution. Yeah. And she described him as scary and manipulative. And he did not give us that information mm-hmm. there. That is a little pe of a little bit of all the information he didn't get of us. He so had the, a lot the of discovery
3: that was held from you, which is not allowed. That would be misconduct, right? So was Absolutely. that, was his misconduct ultimately the way you were able to get your foot in the door to get this thing overturned?
10: Well, ultimately it's called a Brady violation. It's a very technical term, a Brady violation. And it started in, um, Nineteen sixty-three. That you have to reveal information, but that's the key thing. You just elaborated on that. That uh, that Shawna Arnt, she's the, the witness, told the prosecutor on two occasions that Ryan was not the person, but he didn't tell that to anybody. And when the trial occurred, she was a, a witness. He, I did not ask her. Can you point out the person you saw? in the uh, parking lot
3: although the defense attorney didn't either right like th- am i remembering that correctly that's correct but but, oh.
10: but, I under- but i understand why there, there's a reason for that uh no no defense attorney would ask that because he didn't know what she was going right, to say right
3: but you can i guess he. it wasn't his role to prep that that witness but at the same time it's a little he tricky could have asked that question if you guys had been provided with the statements that right. this witness had given it, the prosecutor that it wasn't right. you, then he would have had Thank the ammo. So instead, <laughs> he it was just one thing after another that led to the conviction, but then it starts to unwind. At some point, a very prominent, high-powered lo- uh, lawyer gets involved, because oh. the initial attorney was terrible. <laughs> In comes Kathleen Zellner. Right. So, Ryan, talk to us about Kathleen Zellner and... Was there a point where you, because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, I would, at some stage of this thing, refuse to give myself any more hope ever again because you would, I'd, I'd imagine, build up hope only to get crushed and then crushed and then crushed. And I would might just say, like, enough. Did Kathleen Zellner's involvement start to light that flicker again of, of hope? And when did you start to maybe suspect, I really do have a chance of getting out of here?
9: Kathleen definitely changed how I felt about the whole situation. And when I thought I would be getting out of prison, she came on board in 2009 and shortly thereafter. And you've been in prison at that point for how long? uh, Since 2004. All right. So So, five
3: years, halfway through this is
9: when she got on board. That was a rough five years. (laughs) But then you had five more years. That's, that's the crazy thing. Five more years. Yeah, I got out in 2000. And, and even with somebody as amazing as Kathleen Zellner uh-huh. and all the evidence that we had already dug up, proving my innocence, the whole world can see this at this point. They, it still took that long to get out. And that's what, you know, one of the many issues with our criminal justice system is if it is wrong, if it is proven to be wrong, there are not many avenues for relief. They want to maintain the, right. the a jury verdict a is
3: basically final,
9: right? With Pretty very
3: honest. few exceptions. They like oh, the okay.
9: finality and they want to leave it that way. There's a case in Missouri, went to the Supreme Court, and they they literally argued, even though they knew and had DNA evidence that the person on death row was innocent, that they should allow him to be killed to keep the finality of conviction.
3: Yeah. See, this is part of the reason, just as a digression politically, I'm a conservative I used to be in favor of the death penalty. I am not anymore as it currently stands because I don't think it is okay for the state to end someone's life who has a chance of being innocent. And in your case, if it were a capital case, right, these things drag on forever on appeal. But the idea that you, Ryan, could have been put to death for this is absolutely terrifying and unacceptable to to me. They're going to try. try. But you are now here sitting in a studio with me in New York City because – You had the ability to at least pursue all of this stuff while still living and breathing and not being put to death by the state based on an egregious series of mistakes and, in fact, aggressive malfeasance, intentional Mm -hmm. malfeasance of the state. That's part of the reason why I turned against the death penalty. At least, you know, we can get into a more nuanced conversation. It's, It's a little bit more of a gray area than that for me on a policy level. But I want to make sure that we get as much of this in as we can. At some point in this process, the other guy, the dreamer, who's also in prison, he writes you. He writes you a letter. That ultimately concludes with him testifying at your retrial. I know I'm jumping way ahead, but we have to. You finally get enough evidence on your side, and you marshal enough facts to convince the process, the system, to give you another crack at it. Once you had that second opportunity— and there was no way that you guys were going to let that slip mm-hmm. by the two of you, your new attorney, this guy, Chuck, you know, your buddy who dreamed, literally dreamed up the murder, your involvement in it. What was his message to you and what did he ultimately testify on round two?
9: Ultimately, he wrote a letter and I remember getting a letter. I'm in prison, of course, and it has Charles Erickson's name on it. I'm like. I'm getting a letter from Charles Erickson. It, it blew my mind. And he just acknowledged the fact that he lied and that he wanted to come queen and, and, and admit that. And How so, long were you in prison when you That got, was in 2009. It was right after Kathleen came out. Right, so prison.
3: five or six years mm-hmm. he's been sitting there knowing that he lied. Correct. And he finally decides he wants to do something about it years into your bogus conviction and right. imprisonment. Okay.
9: And so finally, you know, it takes time to get hearing. Uh, You have to go through the courts. And so every appeal takes a year or two years. So whenever they deny one, you know, I know two years of my life are gone. And I know, you know, when I get that letter, another two years will happen before I even get in the court and get that ruled on. So I'm happy, but I'm also like, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. So we end up getting a hearing. We end up uh, having Erickson admit that he lied. We have all the evidence proving that I'm innocent. And I'm going to jump ahead here, uh, but Jerry Trump also acknowledged that he lied. The two people who testified against me said I was there. They both admitted the lying, subjecting themselves to 30 years in prison for lying. So, you know, they had every incentive to just continue with their lie, and they went ahead and acknowledged that they they they. Did wrong. Well, and
3: thank God that happened, because I'd imagine there are some cases where people said, well, I might feel a little bad about this, but I'm not going to prison happens every day for this. Yeah. So uh, at long last, let's fast forward to the end. You now are in front of a new judge. All the evidence is out there. This prosecutor who put you away, what, what does he have to say for himself? And then what happens?
9: Well, before we can jump to the end, there's, there's a hiccup in the middle. And uh, I just have to bring it up because... Judge Daniel Green in Jefferson mm. City, uh, I pretty much is friends with Kevin Crane and protected him. So both the people who put the prosecutor, me, the prosecutor Kevin Crane, yeah. So this judge and this prosecutor buddies, they probably play golf together. Who knows? Um, Crane comes and testifies at the hearing. You can see it all on on uh, the documentary. But long story short, hundred percent proved my innocence at that hearing. The judge takes a year to rule on it, basically. And denies it. So... And when did he deny it? And he denied it on the anniversary of the murder. So he literally waited a year to basically send a message. theatrics there. Yeah, to send a message that it doesn't matter what evidence you have or that the whole world can see it. We're not going to let you out.
3: So how did you get past that?
9: Fortunately, there's an appeals process. So another year, two years goes by. Mm. And, uh, and you know, that was the most crushing moment, I think, for all of us, really, because all the evidence 100% proved my innocence. The whole world can see it, and they can still get away with denying it and leaving me in prison. So fortunately, we went to the uh, Western District Court of Appeals. Uh, multiple judges, they're not related, they're not tied into the community. And that's where we felt like we would actually get a fair hearing, and we did. And uh, three judge panels said unequivocally, you know, they had— evidence hidden from us, Brady violations, and the case should be overturned. And clearly uh, that I'm innocent and that, you know, they could try to retry me if they wanted to. But yeah, that was not going to happen. No, because everybody could see uh, there's no evidence that I didn't belong there to begin with. So that was very fortunate that we had already had all that evidence and the state chose not to.
3: It's just incredible. And it is outrageous. I want to get some final thoughts from Ryan in particular, when we come back on the Guy
2: Benson show. Guy Benson will be right back.
3: Homestretch on this Friday and a special, unusual, important edition of the Guy Benson show. I am in studio with Ryan and Bill Ferguson talking about this wrongful conviction under which Ryan spent a decade of his life, nearly all of his 20s in prison for a murder he did not commit. So, Bill, this was a decade of your life. This was a decade of your son's life. It finally is resolved. You have finally actually won. Talk to us about the first time outside of prison in freedom that you were able to hug Ryan.
10: Well, it was that they released him at the Boone County uh, jail, and he um, came over, and we had a big hug. First time outside of uh, the prison, but we were still in the confines of the jail. And then we went over to the Tiger Hotel, and I'd I'd reserved uh, the ballroom. I would hope so. (laughs) So, Did you
3: have a drink? I would have had
10: a drink. Yeah. uh, Well, we're going to have a drink later. Good Good man. But uh, (laughs) but we want to get there because I had put out uh, a notice that we're going to have a press conference, and Brian would be speaking. And uh, gosh, what were there, like 15 cameras there, I think. Uh, networks from St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Jefferson City, everybody's there. The ballroom was completely maxed out, I feel like. And Ryan stood up and gave uh, one of the best speeches. It wasn't like a canned speech. That was speaking from the heart. And it was so so well-spoken and so uh, well-articulated. I think you got a a, a big clap for that. And uh, uh, that was so reassuring. And then I got another hug, and that's the one that really made the difference. We're on the stage every, in front of everybody, in front of all the television cameras, and now we know it's it, real. It's real. It's that real. was a good hug. And
9: the, well, the first hug, literally, they I didn't even know if I was getting out. I, I had no idea. I knew that the conviction was overturned, but I sat in prison for a week after that. Then they came, got me, took me to the county jail. I didn't know if they were going to rearrest me and then put me in the county jail, try to retry me. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm sitting in the back of a van. I'm handcuffed. I'm shackled. I'm in orange jumpsuit. I'm not free by any means. And I see uh, my father, my mother, uh, my girlfriend. They all walked into the Sally Port. And I knew at that point they would have never let them in there if I wasn't going home. And they all walk in. And then they open the door. Before I can hug them, they have to unshackle me. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there watching me be uncaged and unleashed. And then we hug. And so that was good. But like you said, the, the best hug was... Being stage. away from <laughs> being and away from prison. All of yeah.
3: this stuff is in the documentary. I mean, you need to see this for yourself. If you have enjoyed this hour here on the Guy Benson Show, please go watch Dream Killer. Last question, and it's for you, Ryan. Are you angry that a decade was stolen from you? And second part of the question is, what would be the number one reform? that you would like to see to a system that really screwed you?
9: Thank you so much for this question. Uh, I think it's the most important question, the most important thing we can take away from our whole experience. My family is mine, the 10 years that I lost, I am angry, but it's what you do with that anger. And I think I try to do positive things with that anger and the most positive thing I can do is stop other innocent people from going to prison for crimes they did not commit. Because this is our criminal justice system, it could happen to you, it could happen to one of our family members again, it could happen to anybody we know. And the reason it can happen, the reform that needs to happen, is there needs to be accountability for prosecutors. If pro- like Our system is designed and worded so well that if it worked the way it says it should, it would be a, a perfect system. But there's human error, and there—
3: And there's bad people.
9: There's bad people. And, and they're not always—
3: quote-unquote the bad guys Right
9: There there are literally thousands of people in in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And I've met hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. And in almost every case, a prosecutor knew that they were sending an innocent person to prison and there has been no accountability. They're they're not arrested. They're not put in prison. They don't even lose their law license. I think three prosecutors have lost their law license in over 3,000 wrongful convictions.
3: Yeah, I mean, and look, we on this show support law enforcement and the criminal justice system strongly. There are bad people, many of them out there. We need to be protected from them. That's what the system is designed to do. And I think as conservatives who support law enforcement, we can also recognize, speaking for myself, that there are flaws in the system. And it's not weakness to admit that. And to try in good faith to fix some of those weaknesses, I think that's something that's not left or right or center or anything. That's what we should all aspire to. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to our audience, because uh, you know, now it's years old. You're on to a great life, you're living here in New York, uh, you know your dad's in town, you guys are hanging out. But there was a decade-long nightmare. And you are one example of far too many where this can happen, and I think we should all commit ourselves to at least the goal of reducing the number of wrongful convictions that happen in the country and i just want people to really hear your story think about these issues go watch the documentary dream killer if if you're curious what does this guy look like what does his dad look like it's it's an amazing amazing film um bill i cannot overstate my respect for you and just indefatigable for a decade on behalf of your son just i'm sure you've heard it a thousand times but i am in awe of what you did And Ryan, I mean, the fact that you're still here (laughs) after a decade in prison and all those setbacks is just uh, an incredible testament. I'm I'm honored to have you guys on the show. Thank you both for coming in. Thank Thank you so much. Ryan and Bill Ferguson. Wow. The documentary on Netflix, Dream Killer. What an inspirational but also sobering and eye-opening way to enter the weekend. Thank you both for being here. Thank you all for listening. Have a good weekend. Back here Monday, it's The Guy Benson Show.